Welcome to this episode of the Better Than Goods podcast. First, I'd like to uh, thank my sponsor Visa and Dinesh for the amazing mic they gave. Uh, today, I have a very special guest, uh, Tom Spencer, who's a student at City Law School and chief organizer and chief organizer at London New Liberals. Don't let Tom's student status fool you. He's quite uh, knowledgeable for uh, for his age, and especially if he and and especially for for anybody who's not an uh, economist, he knows a lot of economics. So, hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Thank you for having me and for such a um, a complimentary introduction i'm really excited to speak to you <laughs> uh over the last over the the last maybe 50 years uh housing in london and major cities in the uk has gotten extraordinarily expensive it's 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 it, like i have friends who are studying in the uk and they and they and they really have to pay like 30% 40% of their of their of the of the incomes just to find the roof on their head why has this, has this happened so it's a very basic thing which has very complica- complicated causes of. Effectively, we haven't been building enough houses for a very, very long time. Um, this is a problem which pretty much most Western countries can say that they are suffering from, but the causes in the UK are actually quite different. So after World War II, we introduced a planning regime known uh, under the Town and Country Planning Act 1947. And what the theory behind this legislation was is that the politicians were very concerned about too much wealth being concentrated in the southeast of England and London. And they wanted to basically level up the country in a way that would sort of constrain growth in both Birmingham, which is in the West Midlands, and um, London, where I live now. So they thought if they effectively create a system where you need permission from the council, which is a um, form of local uh, government, to basically build any homes. So if I wanted to say, if I say I owned a patch of land and I wanted to build a house there for me and my family to live in, I wouldn't simply be able to do that regardless of what the local regulations were and things like that. I would have to go to the local council. I'd have to present them with a application and ask for permission to build uh, this house. And the problem is when you have the local government structures having the final say over whether a house can be built or not, they tend to have a incentive not to allow that house to be built. And this is largely because um, when new houses are built, they do exert some negative externalities onto the local homeowners and the neighbours. And those people tend to be the voters. It's very much a reality that older people who are more likely to be homeowners are much more engaged in uh, democracy and they don't really need or want new houses to be built. So we've got a reality where the institution in place create a strong disincentive for anyone to allow houses to be built. And the people with the strongest disincentive of in that process are the people who actually make the uh, decisions. So simply since um, the end of the Second World War, we haven't been able to build sufficient houses to meet the needs of the uh, population. And so it's that um, lack of supply that has, that has led to skyrocketing prices, right? Mm, yeah, sure. So when you've got uh, demand increasing as it does, that people get wealthier, they're able to buy their own homes, able to move out of their parents' house. We've had um, immigration rising through, through the whole period, so the population has grown, and people are like they always have done, want to buy houses, and there's a lot more people who want to buy them now, and there's also a lot more money involved in the uh, uh, population. So demand for, for housing has increased massively, but the issue is supply hasn't been able to keep up due to the constraints imposed by the uh, government and so we've it means that only those with more and more money can outbid those and the prices go up more and more each year okay and another thing you mentioned that caught my interest was the government after world war ii wanted to have a sort of a leveling up between the southeast of england and the north um if i remember correctly boris johnson also said that so what's the what's the history of this why do they keep saying it so like many countries, um, a lot of the wealth is actually concentrated in a few uh, highly productive areas in, in the UK. 
So at the time, um, so throughout World War II, there was a lot of concern that the industrial hubs in the West Midlands, uh, which produced lots of things like cars and steels and bicycles, um, had far too much wealth, as did uh, London, which, as it is now, was a financial centre, a true beacon of industry. And people wanted to really help redirect um, that wealth over to areas which were sort of suffering and weren't doing too well and hadn't had as much investment. Um, the tactics of the Attlee government that came after the Second World War was largely about how do we stop investment going into London and the West Midlands? And it was basically a hope that then if we weren't allowed to invest in those regions, then people would invest in other ones. Didn't really work. It only made London and the West Midlands poorer. So you'll see the uh, population of London actually falling during this uh, period. And although we're identifying different problems these days, I think the methods are different. So when Boris Johnson is talking about levelling up, I think he's more saying we need um, things like... Um, industrial development directed at those regions as opposed to taking it away from the regions that are already doing well. So we've seen recently he wants to um, improve transport links um, in Yorkshire, he wants to build more bridges, he wants to set up industrial hubs and really have this form of um, high-tech revolution, he calls it, um, where there's going to be lots of growth in previously left behind regions. So although it's identifying the same problem, which is simply um, inequality based on what area of the country people are from, their solutions are quite different to what we saw after World War II. Um, you're, you're speaking of Attlee, you're a skeptic on Clement Attlee. Now, I read your, I read your article and I'll, I'll link it in the, in the show notes, but if I understand it, you basically say that the uh, sclerosis Britain had from 1945 to 1979 was largely was largely or to, to a good extent because of Attlee's reforms um, but but I like to but I think sort of otherwise I, I think you are right that 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 is the reforms were bad but I think the bigger problem was that British voters wanted a greater sense of security after the war, and they sort of um, were in more and more left-wing governments. I think even the conservative governments of the day were quite left-wing uh, by by modern standards. So I think Attlee was just responding to the market in, uh, incentives of his time. Um, sure, and I don't disagree that the that the policies of Attlee at the time were actually very, very uh, popular uh, policies and ones which were actually supported at the time by most of the academic establishment. Um, Attlee also was only Prime Minister from 1945 to uh, the middle of 1951, so that was just a six-year period. But what my problem is, is that six-year period was one of the most productive and efficient ones in terms of government making changes. But the issue with that is the vast, vast majority of the changes he made were very much for the worse. So he nationalised huge amounts of the economy and it was largely in unproductive areas he um he nationalized the planning process which is my opinion is one of the most ec economically harmful things any government has done in british history um and what he did by that is that the spread of of democracy is a very slow movement you can't when one person changes the game so much in one direction it's always going to be very slow to change back and the public did like what he was doing because in the short run, it was making them more secure in their jobs. It was um, meeting the sort of perverse incentives of certain regions who said, oh, I really like working in my coal mine. I really wish, even though it's making no profit and causing massive environmental harm and the, costing the taxpayer millions, I'd like it to stay open. But the, the economic reality is that keeping unproductive industries open just causes more and more cost over the long run and we really saw these problems emerge in um, the 1970s where due to very loose rules about unions due to massive nationalizations and an attitude that whenever a key industry fails we just have the government step in and buy it so for example Rolls-Royce a luxury car manufacturer that was a nationalized company Th that's just ridiculous and it was costing the taxpayer millions which could have been spent on better things, such as improving the railways and having a better service for healthcare, having better education. And all of this started really when Attlee just was just a phenomenal politician who just did all the wrong things. 
because he changed the game in terms of what public uh, perceptions were. And if you look at the highly popular beverage report, which he was very much trying to implement, a lot of the things he did were beverage and beyond. The public wanted beverage. He did beverage plus a million other things to make it a vastly more socialist system. And that's why I think Attlee was probably one of the worst prime ministers Britain had in the 20th century, even though he was a phenomenal politician. He got so much done that I don't support almost absolutely any of the, of the things he did. Probably some exceptions, but still. <laughs> <laughs> good policy is there, the good, good, good politics. What do you think, what can, what can lawyers learn more from uh, economists? So I think this is something with the United States, as well as some European countries, they're doing rather well. Um, lots of key, the way law is written is it often uses phrases like um, fair, unjust, um, equitable, which are all sort of moral statements. And it basically, and what the lawmaker is doing when they put words like that into law is that they're deferring the interpretation of that two judges so within a common law system like britain has like america has australia canada etc judges have a lot of discretion over how the law is actually applied in practice and that allowed the law to change over time to meet the values of a society at that time and what the way i see things is word like equitable that isn't just an ethical question that's one which is also an economic question and in areas like um, taxation and antitrust, the law, especially in America and Europe, has very much allowed itself to bend with the developing economic understanding because it recognises things like those kind of terms. And within antitrust, it's slightly different because they use words like competitive. Um, is that economic research allows us to apply the law better. So we don't know what fairness is, but if we can find that one solution by a judge leads to a scenario where the vast majority of the public are far, far wealthier and enjoy a better standard of living, then I would consider that a more fair outcome. And what I'd like in the long run in English law is for us to move to a practice where the economic consequences of different judicial um, judicial judgments um, are better considered in the judgment itself. And I'd like sort of ec economy to have more liberty to prevent uh, evidence in front of court. And you do see this a lot in America, but within England, it's never really taken off. We've never had that same law and economics movement. And I think the quality of English law would very much benefit if we did ha have that. That raises a related question. Um, how exactly then do judges have incentives to get things right? Obviously, judges get something egregiously wrong, especially in cases that are of public interest. They get criticized by the by the media and by the public and so on. But what happens if they if they if, if they get these sort of technical things wrong, right? Nobody's gonna get a front page seat in the in the in the Times or the Guardian if 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 judge uses X. Uh, theory instead of why, what's the way to motivate judges? For example, in the United States, several conservative foundations sponsored um, economics training for judges. Is there is there a different way of doing this? How, what's your theory of change for the judiciary? So I would say judges already have a pretty strong incentive to get things right. Um, within both the United States and England, we have an extensive appeals court procedure. And if you write a judgment, which then goes up to um, an appeals court and the senior judge tells you you've completely messed this up, then you'll, you'll get in trouble. And if you're repeatedly doing that, at least within the English structure, you won't have a successful career as a judge. And so like anyone, they have an incentive to actually apply the law correctly. I think, I think I'd be skeptical of saying, say, um, conservative um, um, legal groups um, employing economists to be activists um, to sort of help bend the views of judges. But I think the problems in America lie closer to the ways that judicial appointments are done in America. So within within the US, there's a lot of political involvement in how judges are appointed 
Um, so, for example, as is commonly known, this the appoint the recommendation for the appointment of the Supreme Court um, justices are done by the president. Within England, we do things very differently. So, up until um, some legislation came in two thousand five called the Constitutional Reform Act, we had a system where the Lord Chancellor, who was a member of of the government, would do the judicial uh, appointments. But recognising that that can create bias in that they could simply appoint judges who are partisan in their favour, we changed that. We created something which is known as the Judicial Appointments uh, Committee. And that is a completely independent committee made up of different judges at various levels and different legal experts. And basically, they, by committee, do the judicial appointments. So we don't suffer from the same partisanship which you see in America because we don't have politicians appointing judges? Oh, no, no, go on, go on, go on. Yeah, and um, because we don't suffer from that uh, partisanship, I have a lot more faith in the English uh, judiciary to apply the law and um, deal with economic analysis a lot better. Okay, no, I meant more of, um, so you gave the example of antitrust and um, what if, like, in every field, there's sort of a dominant paradigm, right? In the in the in the U.S., uh, I'm not sure about the U.K., but but in the U.S., there is the Brandeisian view that, that that big is bad, and any appeals and any lower court judge who who's, who you know gave a big is not necessarily bad decision would would have his um, judgment challenged by the Supreme Court or, or, or any other higher court. I mean, more of how do judge um, how can think tanks such as um, um, you know the, the 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 IEA or political groups like um, new liberals uh, change the general judicial philosophy. So, I don't think think tanks per se are the best place people to change judicial philosophy simply because their competitive advantage is dealing with politicians, so they can change the law. Um, what legal scholars can do is they can change the understanding of how law is applied at university level so for example um if i did a competition law module now the level of economic analysis would be quite low um if any um I, it would be very hard to find anything um there would simply be what previous judges have said and that's it whereas if you actually want to apply that law properly you do need to read some industrial organization literature to understand what the actual economic consequences are of having different market structures and things like that. And I think that needs to happen from an, from the academy first. So what I would do if I was simply just someone who wanted to create this change and my life would devote to creating that change was become one of those scholars, create journals and devoted to this type of literature. So for example, this is what they did in America with the um, Journal of Law and economics at the University of uh, Chicago that was simply publishing articles about the 50s, 60s, 1780s and then all the kind of research which was done in there didn't really impact the judicial mainstream until the 1980s with the um, election of uh, Ronald Reagan who was quite strongly influenced by these uh, scholars. So the best way to create these changes is to simply educate law students better because eventually those law students will be the people who are sitting on the Supreme Court who will better understand the economic consequences of their uh, decisions and be able to use that understanding to actually simply enforce the law as it was written by Parliament better. Okay, okay, that's a fair question. What can economists, so um, legal theory and, 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 and legal writing in general has a different process, right? The, the mindset when you write in the large is very different from, from when you write in economics. What can uh, uh, economists learn from this? What's the missing part of it that, that, that legal studies and, the, and, and, and law can offer to them? I think the main benefit of law is something which could probably help every discipline really, that it requires you to gain an ability to analytically study a text in incredible amounts of detail to better understand it and make a judgment. So, for example, um, a huge amount of litigation is about things which are just like the difference between the word and and or, or um, 
or inclusive or exclusive. And it's literally the difference of two words can create incredible differences in legal application. And I think a big problem with the economics profession is it struggles to translate the research that it does to a layman audience. Um, I try and keep on top with the developments in lots but, of those of but economic... Even even law isn't very good at that, right? I would say within England, our judges are very good at that. So there was a very famous judge called Lord Denning, uh, who was Master of Rolls, which is a very senior judge in the uh, sort of 50s to the early 80s. And he completely revolutionized the way judgments are written in England. He wrote them in plain language so that anyone can read it and actually understand it. So if you read some of my famous judgments in recent English time, uh, which I'd recommend you do. So for example, if you read um, Lady Hale's judgment in Miller number two, anyone who's got a basic knowledge of English could be able to read that and understand it. And it's a really difficult topic. Uh, before that judgment written, I didn't understand that area of law. And yet what I think lawyers have now got really, really good at within England is simply getting such a difficult topic and simplifying it down to basic terms and a basic written judgment. And it's something which I don't think economists do. And also practicing lawyers have to do the same thing. So if you're an advocate and have a client, they don't want you to chuck at them a hundred cases and references. They want clear advice in layman terms, which is really, really useful. And I think, although I think some economists do it rather well, I think the bulk of, of the uh, profession don't because I think they write their papers to be read solely by by uh, economists. And I think there does need to be a greater awareness that there is strong public interest in people understanding the economic literature. So I think there should be more thought before publication about how do I make it so someone who hasn't taken advanced macroeconomics can understand my paper. Yeah, I think it's because lawyers face the market test a lot more often. In the in the end, a, a lot of legal analysis is is either um, is is obviously measured by citations. But I've heard that uh, citations by judges and how useful it is to the judiciary or to or to lawyers matter a, a lot more. And especially for even for practicing uh, economists, they almost never talk to people to laymen who will use their work. But practicing lawyers typically speak with with uh, clients who don't have a legal background. So I think that would be the answer. What's your answer to that? Um, well, personally, I write a lot of um, commentary pieces, so um, sort of things, 700, 800 word op-eds, and that's all to target, target purely at layman. And not, quite often I'm taking quite complicated economic research when I'm writing them and really narrate it, it, it down. And I, I found that incredibly helpful because lots of people look at an issue like immigration. They understand the basics of supply and demand. They think oh, that's going to cause unemployment because the supply of labor will increase and they don't think about it changing on the uh, demand side. But the economic understanding of that has been very different for at least the, the last 30 years since um, the writing of uh, David Card on the Mario Boatlift. And there's so much research going on which contradicts that basic assumption that many people have. And economists just need to reach out more. They need to to go on the, uh, on the news, they need to write uh, uh, op-eds. And when they publish a paper, which is incredible public interest, they need to think, how can I translate this? So someone who's never studied economics will understand what I'm showing. And that will do wonders, in my opinion, that increasing the public understanding of economics, which is largely poor on a huge amount of, um, of areas. Because people are interested in economics, people care about policy, but I think the top level experts don't do enough to actually reach out to, to those people to help them understand what the academy are doing. I think you're one of the few people who should say that there should be more economics op-eds, and I and I actually agree with you on that. All all op-eds should be economics op-eds, but um, no. Uh, what question do you wish people asked you? What is something you've always wanted to talk about but haven't gotten the chance to? Maybe because it's not popular enough, or maybe because it doesn't fit the normal constraints of policy advocacy. Well, that's quite a difficult question. Um, 
I really love talking about law, basically. Um, most the public commentary I do is relating chiefly to economic issues and policy issues. Um, but I don't think there's much demand within England, at least, for commentary on legal topics. And there's quite a few ones which are quite niche, so probably um, better I don't explain them on this podcast. But there's things like the interpretation of the Law of Property Act, um, 1925. Um, specifically, there's something within Article 84 of that, which is... Um, how do I um, so basically in English law there's this thing called a restrictive uh, covenant. Uh, Americans have the same thing. What this basically means is you can when you sell a piece of land to someone, you can create rules of how that piece of land is used. Um, then that piece of land, even if they go and sell it to someone else, they are still bound by those rules. So that's a really odd thing in law because if you look at other contractual relationships, you have this thing called privity of contract which um what that basically means is if i contract with you for a good and then you contract that same good for someone else my rules don't apply to that someone else but there's this weird exception in land and it is what i'm writing my my dissertation on at, at the moment actually and it's a really weird thing because there's no parliamentary reason that exists it was invented by a judge in a case in 18 1854 or something um and the judge only wrote two pages of the writing justifying it it's really got no basis in in democracy parliament simply sim legislated on it but i don't see a good reason why that should exist and i think once i've finished my dissertation i'm going to try and do some more public activism for that and try and get the public to, to understand it because most people in England know it because when they bought and sold their own house they've often found oh I can't cut my hedge above this height oh I can't um put a car on my drive I can't put a pathway here <laughs> it's it's uh, so much of this is it's just ridiculous rules um the law commission in in the UK estimate that I think 80 percent of land have some sort of covenant covenant imposed on it and I don't understand why this is done privately, because we have a planning process, which, although it's not very good, it's better than just letting people create random private rules which exist in uh, perpetuity. So I can explain this in a lot more detail, and I won't now because it's not the most interesting um, topic, but it's something that very much annoys me. <laughs> No, I find I find it extremely interesting. I think my listeners will do. That actually reminded me of this. Um, it'd be even more ridiculous if you had a resale percentage going towards the original owner, right? That that'd be sort of a an 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 extension of this. And funnily, NFTs have that. So if you if there's any futuristic legal scholar looking to this, they should be looking onto how NFTs have this have these same sort of covenants. But like, it's a very new market, so some judge is going to invent a bunch of ridiculous rules on it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite interesting because I think legally speaking, um, and this isn't legal advice because I'm probably wrong, um, um, normally for a contract like that, you'd be able to resell and then you would be able to get a percentage of what the person you contract with get. is is odd that NFTs would allow you that no matter how many times the NFT is transacted, that that would go on forever so we can see this in, in in like in sport for example so if i if i was a football club and i sold a player to a different uh, team and said i wanted five percent of everything they get i don't get five percent of all future transfer fees you get five percent of whatever the person you contract with does so that would be a really interesting legal test so that's a good uh suggestion for uh research <laughs> finally making progress in human in, in the in, in the intellectual sphere but um <laughs> no 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 um you talked about how common law trumps uh, everything else it's not something people consider uh, largely because um first most developed countries have common law Sing uh, singapore does the the uk does hong kong does um, america does because uh, it's not entirely clear at first glance if common law does better than civil law, right? Because ju judges can interpret and reinterpret the uh, can can reinterpret 
the law. And to most laymen, it's not entirely obvious why it should cause uh, a, a difference in economic growth. What's your answer to that? So thirdly, there's actually quite a lot of research looking at this from an economic perspective. Um, there's a very famous um, few papers um, I think the first one published in the late 90s, I can't remember the exact name, so we can put that in the description after. Um, but it basically looked at the different outcomes of um, colonial countries um, based on the difference between those that had civil law um, imposed on it versus those that had uh, common law imposed on it, because then you have a similar starting point, so it led to quite an interesting experiment. And we did find that, um, they did find that there's much, much better outcomes for countries which did impose a common law system. And it's not quite clear based on economics why this is, but there are a few theoretical arguments which are quite interesting. So the two people I think who put the most interesting arguments on this are the American legal scholar um, Richard Posner, as well as um, Friedrich Hayek. And they both emphasise that with common law, there's a greater incentive toward litigation and that tends to lend itself to more friendly um, judgments and also that the reality that where judges are allowed to bend their interpretation of statutes and of contract towards um, increasing knowledge in wider fields they can give more market friendly ones so english law is widely regarded as a very very good jurisdiction to do contracts then and that's because english law has bent itself to have a very literalist understanding of of a term in a contract and that's because judges are allowed to make those changes so if you look at the difference between say english law and french law french law the judges very much have a lot of leeway on stuff like contractual in interpretation because they haven't bent themselves towards a literalist manner and try and be more equitable in the understanding contracts and that just means you have uncertainty when you have a commercial dispute so it's people tend to become warier of getting or contracting with each other so you don't have the um, efficiency gains of that come with that so within economics there's not a clear answer of why it is that common law countries tend to manifest better outcomes but i do think the the way common law tends to incentivize litigation intent tend to incentivize updating the laws in line with societal values as well as um updating updates in economics and other fields do tend to result in better outcomes for people um so that's my theory but i do think there does need to be more research into this area because i don't think we've reached a clear proven answer yet um, what's your what's a view of yours that most peers of yours with, with the same ideological and intellectual foundations will disagree with? Where are you the the outgroup of your in group? Um, so I'd say the biggest area is probably one of two issues. Um, so I'll speak about them both briefly, um, if that's okay. Um, so firstly, I think the monarchy within Britain presents many benefits, and I think would be foolish to um, move to a Republican um, model of government. And secondly, I think Brexit will likely result in net gains for the uh, United Kingdom. So that one I'll probably go into more detail of. So the common theory of Brexit among neoliberal leaning people like myself is that it's in trade barriers for both um, goods, services and people, and that will result in economic harm. That I don't, um, I am completely in favour of a Brexit, which would involve joining the European Free Trade Area, which is a system similar to what Switzerland have, as well as Norway um, and a few other countries. Um, that would mean we would retain um, single market um, um, membership. So that would mean we still have freedom of movement of people, goods, services, labour, etc. Um, but where I think so, as well as that. Um, I think there's a huge amount of market frictions which come with um, membership of the European Union. So firstly, um, when you have a union that large, 
every time you want to create anything, there's an incredible amount of pressure groups um, in every country, which make it very hard to make progress. So for example, um, suppose you have a very, very strong, um, strong union of uh, car manufacturers in Poland. If you wanted to create a trade deal with a different country, which would mean um, lesser barriers for car parts, that may be a damaging thing to that concentrated group in Poland. Um, and because the European Union often requires uh, un unanimity in any, any of its decisions, the Polish government may be influenced to say, actually, we don't support this because it's going to hurt this union, which we need for votes. And it just slows down progress completely. And we saw this with the um, with uh, the rollout of vaccines. Um, England, uh, sorry, the United Kingdom decided to set up our own vaccine task force. We contracted with the manufacturers separately. We had our own um, regulators look at this and we approved vaccines much earlier. We got jabs in arm much earlier and we had much higher uptake because of, the, of this, had we stayed within the European Union's uh, system, we would have got vaccine later. We would have had more uh, supply chain issues because it was done under Belgian law, which didn't provide the same certainty as, as English law. So that meant the English uh, contract had greater weight to it than, than the Belgian one. And there would have been all these other problems, which if you look at the economic harm that COVID imposes, the cost of, of that alone was millions or potentially uh, billions in savings. And, and then there's other things. So the European regulations on procurement, on port access, on um, data uh, protection, all these things are incredibly harmful for growth. They're not thing, things supported by most British people and they do hurt the uh, economy massively. And I think by discounting, by getting rid of all these regulations and imposing better ones, as well as seeking greater op openness um, outside of the EU, as well as over time, we will get better trade deals and we will have a better agreement than we do now. That will, in the long run, create a net gain. And I think a lot of neoliberals, and I think people are starting to realise this now, actually, even though they very much slated me for it in 2016, are starting to understand uh, Brexit a lot better and understand that it is a lot more likely to create massive economic gains than what people initially theorised. I feel like if I wanted to um, somehow increase the views for this 30 by 300%, I would just put Tom Spencer on Brexit, check it at 42 minutes and three seconds. <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically it. Just listen to me rant. Uh, but, but also, if you look at the neoliberal think tanks um, within the UK, think the Adolf Smith Institute, the Institute of Economic Affairs, all of these people weren't solidly pro-Remain and they all agree with me that we need more, more immigration, more trade, etc., because there are these big issues and it's only when I talk to people who aren't from the UK who haven't had that much involvement with the debate, they, they see Brexit as some Trumpist project and it's, it's just honestly not. It's a, a very different argument based on a very different political culture and very different issues and I do think people need to have to actually try harder to understand what the Brexiteers are saying, what people voted for, what the academics who support Brexit want and look at those things. Yeah, no, that's 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 fair. What was your 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 your, your first point on the? I, do, I I I don't fully get your thing on the monarchy. Um, let me put it to you this way: it's not entirely clear. A queen Elizabeth is is obviously the um, the gold standard of what an impartial, non-political um, head of head of state looks like. It's not entirely clear if that would be continued across um, her descendants. Uh, the the argument for the republic is that you can uh, sort of next uh, five years later if you don't like your president you can vote them out and uh but it's not clear what will happen in the monarchy are uh, impeaching uh a monarch is a quite a tedious process that that no parliament would want to get to because it, it snatches away all your time what's your what's the best argument against what if we get an idiot uh king argument so if we get an idiot king, they can't do anything. So the, the monarch is bound by law to follow the advice of their uh, ministers. So, and by ministers, I mean uh, the government. So if, say, this idiot king wants to um, put everyone in prison or something like that, 
they simply don't have the power to do that. The only way they would be able to do that is if the prime minister, we want you to do this, we've been given by parliament to have. So a king can only do what parliament has given him the power to do, and they can only do it if the government tell them to. So I like to think of the powers of the queen more as an executive power as opposed to anything else. So for example, when parliament was uh, was shut down in 2018 uh, for about a week, a decision which was later uh, nullified by the Supreme Court, um, that wasn't the queen thinking, I really don't like parliament. I want to pass Brexit. I'm going to shut down parliament so they can't stop Brexit. That was um, the government going to them saying, we have this power. We're going to tell you to do this, do it. So simply all the monarch is in terms of power is an executive power which they can't which they can't use themselves so even if we had that rogue monarch they can't really do anything because anything they do if it is unlawful if it's irrational if it's disproportional if it hadn't used the same uh, the right procedure then that will all be subject to review and the supreme court will say it's unlawful and the decision is immediately uh, uh, reversed so really the, the the queen can't really do anything it's all ancient legislation which the public don't really understand and they don't understand it till you do a con- uh, constitutional law course um I'd, I'd also say um i'm very mcburkian on constitutional change i think if we're going to change structures there uh, has to be done stably has t- t- to be done in line with public interest and in line of public views everywhere you have disorder and it causes a host of problems um and there's no public demand to get rid of the monarchy. It's supported by the vast majority of people. The, the monarchy imposes no harms on the public because they can't do anything that the government doesn't tell them to do. Economically, it's actually a, a net gain because um, all their land, uh, they pay 100% of that toward the treasury. Uh, they pay 100% of the money they, they get from their property to the treasury and only get a proportion back, which is what they live off. Um, they attract na- millions of tourists each year in, into the UK. Um, th- th- there's really no harm and a lot of gains from the monarchy. So I just don't see a good reason to get rid of them other than just people being overly philosophical and, and pragmatic about it. There is the argument that in a country that supposedly believes in meritocracy, no person should inherit them position and the most clear example of this is the monarchy at least don't you think if if it not not you but if a stronger more um a, a more radical version if you said okay these guys they they were born into this and they're sort of like um symbolically the head of of our nation for no reason except for the fact that they're born into it and that uh, and that annoys me that's what i i i, I hear from most uh, uh, uh republican activists what's the argument against that so, so i think for those people i'd say that the benefit we have of having a hereditary structure is that it is a completely a partisan institution so every country has its ceremonies and they normally involve the head of state and the, the benefit of what we have is say when Donald Trump goes and does an American ceremony like um, giving a pardon to the turkey at Thanksgiving, which they do every year, so that'll be in a few weeks, half the country will think, what an idiot, I hate him. And then you, you don't have that sense of national collectedness and national pride in the ceremony themselves because they're being conducted by someone like Donald Trump. The monarchy, because they don't do anything in public life apart from smile shake hands and do ceremonies don't have that sort of partisan hatred uh, to, to them they're people who everyone is just like yeah they're probably all right people don't have many problems there's certain individuals within the monarchy who aren't involved in public life anymore because they're not good people the only people involved in in public life in within the monarchy are generally pretty good people so i think the benefit it has of not being meritocratic and being hereditary that you have that sense of, of national pride when you have ceremonies. And also, um, I say there is the historical founding in it in that you can trace Queen Elizabeth's second ancestry all the way back to William the Conqueror and beyond. So there's a huge grounding genetically in her right to be queen. And you can relate that very much to your history as a country and your culture, which I think is generally a positive thing. Okay. 
I have several disagreements with that, but we'll leave it at that <laughs> because uh, I think I, I could spend my, my entire time talking about it. My, my last question to you is, what's your theory of change? Because you're, in some sense, uh, I would say a budding public intellectual. I could, I could totally see see you having a Twitch uh, stream or a, or a big column in the in the uh, in the Times. Um, how do you think your your work leads to leads to good policy outcomes? Uh, how do you how do you see the pipeline between writing an op-ed and actual great policy in the in the end? And and, so, and and wait, finally, uh, what's your metric for measuring your success? So for me, my I'll start with your last question. My metric for measuring success is actually seeing policies get changed. So every time I write an op-ed, I'm, I'm doing that for very much purpose. I don't write for the sake of it. I write because I think I want this person to, to read it. I want them to think this way. And I want them to speak about it in Parliament, to... Uh, write a paper on it and things things like that so I'm very much targeted with what I write and the way I write it because I want to maximize the impact of my writing um, my theory of change is so I'm very much doing two, focusing on two things right now I'm doing academic research um, so though I'm an undergraduate I try and do sort of actual research and write academic papers to get them published that's very much targeted at the higher levels of the uh, debates that is me trying to get experts on board and get um, ideas out there and really fleshed out in detail. But then the detailed argument, which I write myself and read other people's arguments, I then translate that through shorter pieces, op-eds, comment pieces, going on TV, radio, and things like that. And when I do those things, I'm hoping an MP might be listening, a Lord might be listening, and they'll go and speak in parliament to do that they'll write a bill to do that or simply it will just get public support so sometimes i think uh, these people would really like this if it were worded this way and that that might not even be what i would i'm most convinced by that's me thinking i can get them on board so that's my theory of change and i i think the best essay on this is um the role of intellectuals in society by friedrich kayak he looks at all the different stages in the policy process and he says you've got the activist that's translated by the think tank translated by the journalist the politician then do that currently i'm trying to hold multiple stages on that because i am i'm i'm still quite young i i, I still have time to focus and find where my best use is but i i i think um yes effectively academics come up with i ideas and research that's translated by think tanks which translate that in ways for politicians and journalists to read it and write about it then the politicians uh then the journalists do that then the politicians read it and it actually the change gets done so everything needs to be done at every stage with the idea that eventually this is going to be a policy that will be implemented but everyone has their own role to do it yeah i think you you described the um what is called the food chain of policies very well because um that's 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 the way i call it they're the lines at the at the top and the glass at the bottom and flows from from down to up um finally uh what's the biggest scope you think for law related media this, this is my last question what's the what's what's one thing that's missing in the public understanding of the law and what is something that um, like what is one piece of of media like like a podcast or a blog that's that's that 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 should be there but isn't there i don't think the public understand the constitution at all um britain had the difficulty that our constitution hasn't been codified into a single text so it takes some knowledge of history and things like that to actually understand how it came about um but the history curriculum at school doesn't do anything to actually teach it so for example, the, the basic truth of the British Constitution is parliamentary sovereignty, effectively. Parliament can make or unmake any law. Um, most people understand Parliament sovereign. They don't understand the ramifications of that. So, for example, um, the, the famous example, um, Parliament could legislate to ban smoking on the streets of Paris. 
it probably won't get done because the French courts won't enforce it. But if Parliament wanted to make it illegal to smoke in, to smoke in Paris, they could do so. If they legislated to hang, draw and quarter all blue-eyed for people, they could do that. And there's no limits on what Parliament can do. And things Wouldn't like that... that violate some sort of equal protection clause in the Human Rights Act? So Parliament is sovereign over the Human Rights Act. If such thing was to happen, um, the courts could issue what's called a, um, a declaration of incompatibility, which says that the legislation is incompatible with, with the uh, European Convention of Human Rights. But that has no legal base, that's got no legal power. It's simply the court saying that this isn't in line with human rights, done. Nothing else happens. So you're telling me is under uh, the, the law of the UK, there are no acts that require more than 50% of parliament to pass, unlike the US, which you know, constitutional amendments re require two thirds. Same for Singapore. Yeah, we have no, no, such, no such clause like that. The closest thing to it is we've got something called the Fictum Parliament Act, which says that a parliamentary session is, is five years effectively. If you want to call a general election early, you need, um, I think, two thirds of parliament to vote for it. But I think that's currently going through the process being being repealed anyway. So the concept of supermajority isn't a thing within the English uh, constitution. Aren't you concerned about it? Um, so there is a way that we do mitigate that, which is another thing I, I think the public would benefit from, is that the courts interpret legislation with a pretty strong presumption that they're not trying to derogate basic civil liberties or the uh, rule of law. So that was um, called the principle of legality coming from the case of Lord, Ho Lord Hoffman judgment in Sims. Um, so there's tons of examples where Parliament had legislated contrary to uh, the rule of law. Technically, that they're entitled to do that, but they need to make it pretty damn obvious to actually the law. So the courts have a lot of leeway where they say, eh, they're not trying to do that. But I generally think we have enough checks and balances within our legislative process that it won't cause any massive issues. Um, and I think it's a bigger issue when you have a Supreme Court who don't have any democratic mandate, who can basically say, no, we don't like this legislation, it doesn't count. And we're seeing that with in America. So for example, abortion has never been legalized by statute there because there'd be no incentive to do so because Rowan Wade made it legal. So now a simple change in the Supreme Court could get rid of the right to abortion and sit across the entire country. That, that to me is a manifestly worse situation than having the actual incentive for Congress to say, oh, we know the courts are legal. Um, that for me is the, the worst situation than the Congress actually to having to legislate to legalize abortion, which they would have done by now, but they've had no reason to do so because the courts have done it for them. But the courts changed their mind and it creates huge harm. And I'd much prefer having a sovereign parliament um, which can just legislate. But also, is even if it isn't the best idea to have parliamentary sovereignty, it's important that the public, un that the public understand this. And I don't think most people do. Uh, I think there should be some you know, nice British person who is leading this and say, okay, I'm going to blog about this, but I don't have the, 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 the experience nor the interest to do this. So thanks a lot for coming on this. I think this is one of the most interesting episodes because it's not about like economics and it's, 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 it's like on the edge of economics and law. So I really liked mm. it. Um, and it was great having you. No, uh, thank you for having me. I uh, really um, enjoyed it. Okay.